Hi, beauties. A certain age as summer break is almost over, but we are still speeding across New England, visiting friends and in search of the best lobster roll. So I'm resharing one last past show that needs to be on your radar. This week, listen in as Laura Friedman Williams talks about her riveting debut book, Available, a memoir of sex and dating after a marriage ends. Laura dives into the one-night stand that resuscitated her sex life, shares how reclaiming her sexuality restored her confidence after a bruising divorce, and so much more. I absolutely loved this show. I know you will, too. We will be back with a brand new show next week. We kick off a very special month of August summer fun, creative guests, and a special anniversary show to celebrate one year of a certain age. Until then, happy summer, beauties. Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women on life after 50 who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. After decades of marriage, three kids, and years as a stay-at-home parent, Laura Williams' marriage and world imploded. Her upcoming book, Available, a memoir of sex and dating after a marriage ends, is a riveting, page-turning read, a navigating the modern dating scene, rediscovering sexuality, and redefining identity as the definition of wife is stripped away, the family unit morphs and shifts, and a woman with a rich and complex private life emerges. Welcome, Laura. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have a chance to talk about my book. I am so excited myself because I was up late last night ripping through the book, which is so vivid and wonderfully written. It's it's really raw. It's it's often funny. Uh, at times, it feels devastating. It's it's truly unflinchingly honest. How and when did you decide to write this book? Well, when I first started dating. Uh, about six months after my husband and I split, I had up until the point that I started dating, really up until the first night I went out and found somebody to take me home and have sex with me, I had no even notion of what it would be like to be dating again or no thought about it. I was just reeling. I was reeling from the end of my marriage. I was trying to help my children through this time. And as I started dating, some of the stories were very funny. And in hindsight, some of them, even while they were funny, they were a little bit heartbreaking uh, because I think everybody, by the time they're you know, coming to the table in their midlife, they've had so many failed relationships and, and difficult childhoods and, and difficult marriages or estranged children that everybody comes to the table with a, a pretty uh, a complete narrative, I'll say. So I had funny stories. And I was sharing them with friends and they kept saying, you have to write these down. They're so funny. These things are so funny that are happening to you. And so I thought, okay, you know what? Maybe I'll do a collection, a sort of sex in the city for a middle-aged woman um, about what it's like to be out and about, the sort of anecdotal um, collection of what it's like to be out and about in the world. But as I was writing that, it felt false to me because underlying that really fun part was a woman in deep pain. And I felt like it was false to present this sort of fluff version of myself without talking about where I was coming from. So over time, the book became deeper and more raw. And it covered both the fun parts and the really painful parts. I, I, I so agree. There are so many moving moments in this, this, this book. And I, I, um, you know, really connected to the fact that you were sort of being so vulnerable and, and sort of navigating this terrain, this very unfamiliar terrain, because you say at one point, 
you know, I haven't been on a date since I, you know, last had a fake ID, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it had been a long time, but you were navigating something entirely new while something so familiar and comforting, like your old life was ending. Um, and, and you talk about how some of the women in, in your life, your friends that supported and lifted you up during that time, really wanted you to be sharing your stories with a wider audience because they had people, women in their own lives, their friends, their sisters, that weren't making this transition, you know, to single life and a sexual life well. You know, how do you feel that you were able to reclaim your your, your sexuality and sort of your, and your desire? Was it a progression? Did it walk us through absolutely. that? It was absolutely a progression. And I wish I knew the light bulb moment when I knew I could make it happen. Um, because as I said, I wasn't thinking about it. I was devastated. I mean, I was, you know... And that was why when I first started writing the book, even though it was supposed to be fun and, you know, I'm out and I'm dressed up and men are hitting on me or I'm going on dates, I realized I I could barely drag myself out of bed in the morning. I had to coach myself every morning, put one foot on the ground, put the next foot on the ground and start moving. You have children who need breakfast. You have children whose lunches have to be packed for school. You paste on a smile. You get them out. And then you may fall apart for six hours until it's time to pick them up again or until they come home from school. And I teenagers who are very aware of what's going on. I mean, it's one thing, you know, my my youngest daughter was maybe seven at the time, six or seven. But the older kids were watching me like hawks for, for everything to make sure I was okay. They were scared that I wasn't going to be okay. Uh, but they were also, they wanted room to fall apart. And they didn't, they, they couldn't have me falling apart because I had to, you know, hold up the ship. So I wasn't thinking about dating. And then I had this just sort of evening where I was trapped in my bedroom while my ex-husband and daughter were in the house somewhere. And I just thought, I I can't do this. This is not living. I have to see what's out there. I just need to see as a experiment. And so I did get myself dressed up and perfumed. And I went out to a bar in town thinking, how ridiculous I felt. And, and then I've met somebody. It was crazy. I felt like I was in a rom-com. I mean, I certainly <laughs> didn't expect to meet anybody. And it, the whole thing felt like this weird sort of cheesy setup that I wouldn't have believed if it wasn't happening to me. And it was so empowering and so exciting and such an amazing distraction from the misery that, of, my, of my actual life. And I think after that, I just wanted more of it. And so some of it, I would say, was just me reeling. And some of it was me waking up. There were two things happening at the same time. And I, I guess what I, what I did that may be different than what other women do is I just let it be. I allowed myself to enjoy those moments. I just embraced it, even while knowing that I might have trouble getting out of bed again the next day. That's so, I love the fact that you just kind of let yourself be and that you uh, allowed yourself to enjoy because I feel like that's probably just an enormously core part of a positive sexual experience, you know, no matter what, uh, just to to sort of give yourself over to that moment. And you were able to to do that as you as you shifted. Did you feel like your sex life with your sort of new sex life was was wildly different from your old sex life in your married life? Is that okay? Oh, Is that okay 100%. to ask? Or <laughs> no, no, no. I'm very. I mean, look, you can't write a book about your sex life and then pretend to be coy about it, right? So I'm pretty honest about it. And 
my ex-husband and I are friends, and he is actually reading the book right now. He's about halfway through it. Is he shell-shocked? <laughs> you know what's really funny? He's not. So all along, I'd been kind of prime, you know, priming him when I was writing the proposal. This is going back a couple of years. I'm writing this book, and I did have a lot of sex. You know, I just was trying to figure things out. And he was like, okay, okay. And then I gave it to him to read, and there were a couple of people that he knew. Uh, that that I had slept with. So I wanted to preface that with him to make sure that I, I just didn't want him to be surprised. Sure. I didn't want there to be any, he and I are very good friends. We're on very good terms. And I just didn't want there to be any negative surprises for him. So I said to him, I'm, I'm curious to know what it's like for you to read about your wife having this incredibly passionate, diverse sex life after saying repeatedly that her married sex life was quite humdrum. <laughs> and I think in his mind also, in all fairness to him, he always had a much greater sex drive than I did. I think having kids was very, it's always very difficult for any married couple. You, you know, we had three kids over a span of 11 years. So it just felt like there was always a child in our bed forever. Um, and uh, there just wasn't a lot of room for intimacy. And I was not good at making room, I have to say. And I take responsibility for that. I never wanted to leave my kids. I, you know, he'd invite me on business trips with him and he was always traveling. And I was very like, no, no, I'm, I have to be home with the kids. I can't do that. And so, it, you know, I take responsibility for the fact that our sex life was humdrum. It was really on me, not on him. But well, I, did I think have it's a mutual thing. It's a, it's a mutual thing because, you know, it's it's the two yeah. of you. I guess, you know, he did. I guess he invited you places. But, you know, if you were bearing yeah. the brunt of the, the child rearing, too, I mean, it's sometimes that's that's on him because it does yes. it does deplete you and it leaves you, you know, you're you're stretched in so many different ways. It's hard. So do you think that like it's this is so interesting. So I'm thinking of my own life where I have, you know, three kids and I feel stretched in a gazillion directions. And, you know, if I'm being totally honest, my husband would probably like to have more sex. Um, so do you feel that it's possible to have like a really fabulous sex life when you're in a long term marriage? Or is this something that really opens up when you you are divorced because divorce for all of its sadness and its devastation creates free time in your life mm -hmm. when you start to split up how you're spending your days and who's caring for the kids. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think it does two things. One, it gives you free time. And two, it gives you novelty. It's very hard to sustain attraction and a, a vigorous sex life with somebody you've been sleeping with for 25 years. And I do think that sex becomes, it goes from being something that's really fun and just, you know, sexy and intimate to practical when you're trying to make children. Um, and for some people, like for myself who had a hard time getting pregnant, it was a job, you know, having sex was a job. Like we have to have sex tonight because I think I'm ovulating and that is not very sexy. And that, you know, and that, that, and then the children come you know, and then you're leaking milk and then your body is, you know, not forming correctly the way that you want it to. So over time, I think that gets really hard. So I, I think it is possible. I have friends, some friends who have really nice sex lives with their husbands. I'm going to say that most um, don't seem to have the sex lives that they once had. 
And I think it's possible, but I think you really have to make an effort. It's not going to come organically. But even that and effort, I, it's funny, Laura, because one of my friends has something that she calls Tune Up Tuesday. When I first ha- heard about it, I was like, <laughs> what the what? And Tune Up Tuesday, she's like, it's the gap between Saturday. Of course, you're having sex on Saturday because you go out. Uh-huh. But then by Tuesday, you need to tune it up again and make sure, you know. And I was like, this feels <laughs> too organized. I'm not sure I can get behind Tune Up Tuesday. Although, you know, um, Mike might be like, all right, Tune Up Tuesday. <laughs> but, you know, I, feel I don't like- know. It sounds pretty good to me. I, I actually, when I was married, we had such a hard time. Because as you say, it's a vicious cycle. I was exhausted. By the time we got into bed at night, I just wanted to be in my bed with my cool sheets covering my body and nobody touching me. I remember once a friend said to me that her sister gave her the advice, always start having sex standing up because then you won't be too tired. So I used to always... You're like, this is a shower situation. If you want to have sex, you better find me when I'm like, I don't have three kids hanging off of me. That's so funny. Start quickly while I'm brushing my teeth because you have an opportunity. Oh my God. And once I lie in bed, it's all over. Exactly. My my eyes are going to be closed. My body's going to relax and it's just going to be repelled by you. So I used to always think that start standing up, start standing up. And I didn't really. Um, And I, so I was, I'm a very organized type A person and there did come a time where I felt the pressure uh, to have sex every night was so intense. And I was always looking for excuses or to pretend I was asleep when he got home late, you know, things like always coming up with reasons why we couldn't have sex. So I could just be left alone. Like if I heard the door open and I was already in bed reading a book, I'd turn out the light really fast and close my (laughs) eyes. So I, I would be unbothered there are women listening to this that are nodding right now by the way (laughs) (laughs) i had so many good i mean then he would be like oh i'm gonna be out late tonight and i'd think hallelujah so i can actually sit on the couch you know i don't even have to pretend tonight so i um i would i did come to a point where i thought scheduled sex seems pretty brilliant to me because then i know i'm on or i'm off there's no pressure on my off nights. I know that I'm off. And now I have. I know that I can't just get into bed and hope for a quiet night on a Saturday night because that's my on night. So I said, <laughs> okay, we'll, we're going to make Wednesdays and Saturdays sex nights. And I thought that was pretty generous. Two nights a week. I mean, for a couple of three kids who've been together for 20 something years, I thought like I was knocking it out of the park. Do you, Laura, have you ever seen that? You're a New Yorker. So you probably have seen um, all the Woody Allen movies before, you know, Woody Allen got canceled. But there's a scene in, um, I think it's Annie Hall, when he and Annie are seeing therapists and it's a split screen. And she says to them, how many nights a week do you have sex? And he, she says all the time. (laughs) It's like three nights a week. And then she asked Woody Allen, he's like, we hardly have sex. It's only three nights a week. <laughs> and it's so genius because I feel yes. that that, you know, really, I don't know. It's just a great little snapshot sometimes of how the male and female sex drive might diverge um, or not. Because you do talk in your yeah. book about how um, you have a new appreciation and a new awareness of your sexuality. We are going to talk about that in just a minute because we're taking a quick break. Okay. Menopause is inevitable, but the symptoms that accompany it don't have to be. Meet Kindred, the company that will make your peri to post-menopause journey smoother. As a big believer that midlife is more fun with girlfriends, I absolutely love that Kindred cultivates community and shares resources so you feel supported at every turn. 
Their private Facebook group is a place to ask questions and connect with other women navigating the same terrain. All May, a certain age is exploring different types of relationships and how they evolve in midlife. Kintra also offers products that can support romantic relationships, including the Daily Vaginal Lotion, which helps lessen pain during intimacy, and the Core Supplement, which is clinically proven to boost libido. Who doesn't want better pain-free sex? Kindra has a generous offer for certain age listeners. Any first-time purchasers or subscribers get 20% off anything. Use code KD20 at checkout. That's K-A-T-I-E-2-0. Head to ourkindra.com for menopause essentials that work. Okay, Laura, we're back. I want to sort of resurrect this idea that, you know, men and women in culture are often thought of as having different sex drives, right? Like women are are less into it than men and men, you know, are just like really sexually driven and inspired. But your book really covers the ground that you like developed these new sexual appetites that you didn't you didn't have before or that maybe you would have had in the past, but that years of, of mothering and parenting and and uh, marriage had kind of dampened. Can you can you share a little bit yes. more about what you learned about yourself in the book? Yes. Well, it's funny because I always thought I just didn't have a sex drive and that I just wasn't that interested and that my husband was just, you know, like always just very excited, could watch two people kissing on screen. That was, that counted as porn for him to want to <laughs> have sex. And for me, it was just like, oh, how sweet, like back to bed. So uh, I was having lunch with a friend the other day who read a galley of my book since it's not out yet. And she said, really what I thought as I read it was, if I was single, cause she's been, she'd been married. She has been married for a long time. Like, um, I had been, if I was single, I would just be so happy to never have to have sex again. It seemed exhausting. Your, your constant being out and looking for men and having sex just seemed exhausting. How did you have the energy? And I thought back to my early days when I was first, um, sexually active when I was in my late teens. And I did love having sex. I loved my body and I loved being intimate with men. And I was always very, I was very monogamous. I didn't sleep around. I talk in the book about how I had very limited sexual um, experience because I was with the first person I slept with when I was 17, 18 years old. I, I stayed with him for a year and a half the next person I had sex with, I stayed with him for about a year and a half. And then I started dating my husband. So I never had those early 20s, you know, even early 30s experiences that a lot of people have where they're single and they're dating a lot and experimenting and seeing all different kinds of things and just feeling free in their bodies and free to do what they want to do. A one night stand. I'd never had a one night stand. So I forgot all that you know, the, the, the busyness of my life as a wife and a mother and, you know, into my forties and a middle-aged woman, I just forgotten that early part of me existed. Or I just thought that's what it means to be 18 or 20 years old. It's not relevant to me anymore as a 40 something woman. So it was pretty shocking to me to discover that first night that I had sex. I wasn't planning on having sex. I just wanted a sort of breaking in. It was almost like I, I remember very well being 18 and wanting to lose my virginity. And my best friend and I saying, this is going to be the summer. We're going to just do it. It didn't matter with who, just anybody <laughs> would do as long as we could just get it. Oh, it was a rite of passage. Right. Of course. We've all seen those teen movies. You knew, you knew it had to happen. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up in the era of Molly Ringwald. It was not, I, I wanted it done. And so we both, we, we managed to do it within a few weeks of each other. And I ended up staying with the guy that I was with. And I did really like it. So as an adult, as 40, I guess I was 47 when I first started uh, down this sort of new path. I wasn't thinking about anything other than, well, I hope my body is okay. I hope that my parts are all intact. I, I don't I don't know what I don't know. I mean, I, I go to my OBGYN every year for an annual. She hasn't said anything is amiss. <laughs> I'm still having sex with my husband, and I he's not complaining. It's He's complaining it's not enough, but he's not complaining there's anything wrong. But I hope somebody who hasn't seen me isn't going to be horrified But what he finds down there. I don't know. So that first night that I had sex with a stranger, really, I, I was looking for some sort of just like losing my virginity again. Like, let's just check this off. But it felt so good. It felt good mentally. It felt good physically. And I want, I was, I just wanted more of that feeling. I'd forgotten what, how thrilling sex could be. That sort of raw, ravenous sex that you have when you're just hungry for somebody. And actually there's not much of an emotional attachment. I'd really never had that. I became emotionally attached to everybody I ever had sex with. So I can't even remember how I started. I don't even remember where this question no, started and what I'm trying to but answer. By the way, I love where it's ending. I mean, who cares where it started? Okay. I, <laughs> I, I right. love where it ended. Like, I just love the idea that you were able to just, I don't know, kind of resurrect that that drive. I mean, it's, it's called a sex drive for a reason. It's like you know, all, the, all the words around it, like inflamed or, or just like, you know, that sort of passion, like you were experiencing that again, which, you know, is hard to experience in a long-term monogamous relationship. So, I mean, do you feel like now that you ignited that flame, I'm getting like dropping into the cliche world here, is it available during all of your sexual encounters or did even the novelty of having novelty become less novel? (laughs) Right. It did. Yes and no. I'm going to say yes and no to that. I would say I still love having sex. So it's been about um, two and a half years, maybe almost three years since I started having a lot of sex again. And I, I still love it. And I think the difference between where I was and where I am now is that I see myself as a very sexual being and I'm not, I embrace that. I'm not afraid of it anymore. I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm not, I don't find it unseemly. I think that there was a part of me that believed it was just not right for a woman in her middle age with children, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mom, you know, running around the city with my Trader Joe's grocery bags and my yoga pants. It just seemed unseemly for, for me to, to want that. And I am not, I'm not ashamed of it anymore. I'm the opposite of it. I, I think, of course I am a sexual being. Why shouldn't I be? I hope I am into my, I'm now 50. I hope I am into my sixties and seventies. I hope I'm always going to be a sexual being And actually, one of the things I talk about in the book is that I'm really intrigued by knowing what sex has been like for women who are older than us. I have a conversation with my friend's 80-year-old mother and talk about when she first met her husband and what kind of sexual uh, experiences they had together. Because I realize now that so many of us are sexual beings, but it's so buried under all of these layers of our identity. So I do think the novelty of sex is still there and also not there. So I've been dating someone for a couple of years and we still have a really good sex life. And if we didn't, I wouldn't stay with him, even though he's so good to me and I love the time we spend together. It's too important to me now 
to have that connection with somebody and to have it be really satisfying is too important to me now. I will, I will not sacrifice that again. But I'm also very careful to protect my freedom and the fact that this is still a huge novelty for me being out and about. So when I first started dating, I dated a lot. I was like speed dating. I slept with a lot of people in a short amount of time. And eventually by the time I got to maybe, I'm going to say the 10th person, I was done. I was exhausted. I, I was like, I got it. I get what it is now. I see what my body can do. I, I kind of get what I like. Um, I don't need to be doing this with different people all the time. Now, in fact, if I can't see the guy that I'm dating, I might just be happy to sit with a carton of ice cream and a remote control. <laughs> but to Netflix I and chill. Mean, but you absolutely. learned, you know, you learned that you had this identity that had been sublimated all these years. And I think that is a big theme of this book. It's just about shifting identities. You know, you describe yourself now as like acknowledging and, and sort of stepping into the fact that a part of your identity is a sexual being, but other other parts of it really had to had to kind of shift. You know, where you talked about the um, your idea of being a good mother, you know, and how like being a yes. good mother maybe um, got in the way of allowing yourself to be a fully realized sexual woman. Like, do you feel where have you landed on that now? Like, do you feel? that the two are mutually exclusive or that you can be both because I think you can be both, but I want to hear what you have to say. I agree with you. I think you can be both, but I think it's really hard and I think you have to find the right balance. And I would say I'm still trying to strike that balance. I, I believe it is essential to be both. And I do wonder if I had earlier in my marriage and in my career as a mother, if I had preserved that notion of myself as an individual person and a woman and a sexual being outside of being a mother and a wife, if I had been able to preserve that, if I would have been happier ultimately in my marriage and would have been more giving in a marriage. Like a marriage, I want to say, first of all, obviously it takes two. So back to your point about the fact that I wasn't that giving in bed anymore, but also I was depleted at the end of the day. The same is true in terms of the relationship that I had with my husband. I, I was, I always with him was a mother first. I, everything was about the kids and I wish that I had maintained a little bit more of myself. I also, I worked in book publishing for 10 years and after I had my second child, I decided to stay home and I loved it. And when I do something, I go all in, whatever it is that I'm doing. So I threw myself into motherhood. I ran, you know, I ran every PTA and I did the auctions and the bake sales. There was never a bake sale. I wasn't selling brownies at. And I loved it. I loved those times. But I, I didn't have anything else. That was my focus and my passion. And I think that I felt that if I did anything else, it would have been selfish. It was not, it didn't fit with my notion of what a mother should be. But where so did I you went get, from that. I'm curious, so, so, uh, where do you think you got that notion, Laura? Because, you know, I, I think that we see a lot of that in movies, you know, in books and in culture. Mm. You know, did, did it come from your, because your mother, you talk about your relationship in the book and you guys have a close relationship. So she wasn't you know, necessarily the person who was giving this. Like, where do you, I'm curious. I know that people who are listening to this or can identify with this, this notion of good mothering. How do you think it got so deeply seated in your, in your brain? It's really a great question because it didn't come from my mother. My mother is um, 79 and she's a computer scientist with a PhD. And so she's very successful and she never stayed home with us. She was always working and actually got her PhD when I was in high school. 
So, but, but the interesting thing about her was she always managed to work at home. So she had this career where she really could work at home and then she would go to school at night. She always figured it out, but she was always available to us. She was always around to the point where I was like, God, I wish my mom would go to work so I could just watch soap opera. <laughs> so I could have like sex my with my seventeen year old boyfriend <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> without exactly. being afraid they were gonna walk in on me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Like that really would have helped me. I, I probably could, I could have been like sixteen. It would have I, I would have been throwing myself at virginity much earlier. So I I didn't get it from her. She was a very big supporter of have your own thing, uh, you know, ha- have your own career. But but she's also the ultimate Jewish mother. She was always there for me. She was so present as a grandmother, continues to have a huge presence in my children's lives to the point where sometimes I'm like, Mom, we're not co-parenting these children. They're just mine. You're like the biggest cheerleader, but I get to make the calls here. And I think I have to imagine that all of my feelings about that just came from what I saw in other mothers I admired, maybe books, um, just this, this notion that the good mother is totally present in her kids' lives. And I didn't, I, I saw a lot of women who worked and who, you know, had careers and they would try to fit in, you know, a, a shift volunteering for the PTA. They would do what they could. And I had a lot of respect for them. I didn't judge them at all thinking, oh, wow, well, she's working. I judged myself more. I felt kind of lame in comparison, like, oh, I don't have the career. So I really have to do this part well. I think that that may actually be what it was. Like, I, if I'm not going to have the big career and I don't have the, you know, I don't have all the credentials to my name. And I was, you know, I mean, I'm an academic person. I'm, I'm well-read. I went to college. I thought I would have a, a big career. And I gave, it, I gave it up because I really wanted to be with my kids. And it just seemed too hard to have two parents who were working crazy hours. So I think I had to prove it to myself. I think it really came from me saying, if this is what you're going to do, you're going to do it excellently. And right. there can be no room for failure. And there can be no room for yourself yep. because you're going to be the best mother ever that totally makes sense and to that, me. yeah that, that's this notion yeah, yeah. of just excelling and of uh we, we live kind of especially you know we both grew up in new york city and it's like a hyper it's a phenomenal world's best city but it's also a hyper competitive space where like everyone's mm-hmm. knocking it out of the park somehow and yes you, you know and we're type a and you want to excel and so you want to be like, like the awesomest at whatever it is that you're doing and you see success all around you and you, you know you want to own that family dynamic uh i want to explore something before we we, we you know begin to wrap which we're going to be doing in a, in a short while but i do want to explore mm-hmm. like you had this shift in identity you had a very dislocating shift in your marriage where that changed and your family unit you know had to reform itself in a new way uh how did this uh, your divorce and also your newfound sexual relationships affect your personal relationships with your friends. You know, because I've, I've seen sometimes the experience of when you diverge from your peer group, some people are really excited and intrigued and want to know more. Mm-hmm. And some people are resentful. They think mm-hmm. that what you're doing is a judgment on, on like their behavior. What what was mm-hmm. the reaction from the women in your life specifically? Because we could talk about everybody, but I want to know about your female friends. How did they react? I have to say, I would have expected there to be more of a mixed reaction and more judgment. I happen to have really good friends. 
And I think that the women I surrounded with myself with over the years, and this is going back, you know, to from childhood friends to college friends to work friends to my mom friends, they really supported me and they wanted me to be happy again. I don't remember anybody ever making me feel badly. If anything, there were there were two things. One, I felt so much that they were my um, cheerleaders, that they really wanted me to thrive and for me to find my way. I, I think also I had been always, um, I, I say this in the book, that there was a, a time when I, I was so heartbroken and I'd always been sort of the dear Abby of the group. Like people would call me, dear Laura, what do I do? <laughs> My teenager's acting out. Dear Laura, what do I do? I don't want to have sex on Wednesdays and Saturdays anymore. I just want to do it on Saturdays. <laughs> Saturdays and, Saturdays. and I always had an answer and it was sort of weird. I'd, you know, I always felt like I was sort of this authority on everything that I was not an authority on, but I, but I, carried it well, I guess. And so for me, when it turned out that my marriage had totally imploded, like right under my nose, I felt like, what a sham. I don't have any advice to give to any of these women. They've been relying on me for years. And it was a big scam because I am the one who got dumped. And I don't know. I think that they really loved me, these friends, and they Aww. really wanted me to be happy. And I, most of these women I don't know that I lost any friends, actually. I really like to think about that. But, you know, I talk a lot about my girlfriends in my book, and they were really good to me. And I was really good to them. You know, over the years when other friends suffered or had, you know, things going on in their lives, I was really supportive and loving with them. So I think I got back what I, what I gave. Um, what I will say is that there was definitely some jealousy in the sense of, I can't believe you get to do this. You had a better and sex life than everybody. <laughs> everybody. And I would say, and they would live vicariously through me. I mean, it was sort of like if I didn't complete the deed one night, you know, if I, if I didn't have sex with somebody, they were so disappointed the next day. Like, that's it. What now? But like you, you left us hanging. We thought we were going to have this great story. And they loved to hear the stories. And a lot, you know, they, they, what I found out in talking is first of all, because I am so open about everything from dating and sex and the end of my marriage and how it happened. Um, when I talk to friends, stuff gets real pretty quickly. There's really no more curtain. You know, we just get right down to the basics and of everything of, of sex and relationships and who can orgasm and who can't and who's having sex twice a week and who's having it every year. <laughs> once a year. I mean, it's, I'm seeing the, honestly, it ha it's really, and I empathize with all of it because yeah. I understand how hard it is. But what I've seen from talking to a lot of women is that more women than not have a great vibrancy to them still and know themselves much better and are also not afraid to say, I'm 50 and I've got a great sex drive, but I don't have a great sex life with my husband and I'm not sure what to do about it. And we've had talks about it, about is it okay to have, you know, to ask your husband for like a one night's permission for a one night stand to say, this might keep our marriage alive, you know, having, being able to have an open marriage. Um, by the way, I've, I've yet to find any husband who has gone for that. Right. Um, <laughs> which is a shame, which is a shame truly, because I often think, you know, if I tried that in my marriage, I maybe I'd still be married. And even now, by the way, I want to say I was, I was going to get to this before is that even though I've been dating somebody for a couple of years now, 
and we're sort of dating exclusively, I maintain the right that I am not monogamous, that I can do whatever I want with whoever I want, whenever I want, because I don't want to feel that I'm in a box ever again. I don't want to feel that it becomes a, hum- I don't want there to be a chance that it becomes humdrum. My sexuality is so new to me and so precious to me that I will preserve it, even if it means risking a relationship with somebody who's really good to me and who I love. So um, I, I haven't, you know, I didn't, there was no negative fallout with my friends, but I do think that the upside of this incredible heartache that I had and my life falling apart is that I get to have this now. I, and I don't know how you get to have that if you've been having sex with the same person for 25 or 30 or more years, but I think it's possible. I just never, it hasn't, it didn't happen to me. So I don't know how to make it happen. But, you, but Laura, um, but you even say in the can. book, you say in the book, uh, in, in one of the final sort of chapter or two, that you wouldn't take your old life back, even if it was offered to you, right? That that yeah. you are, you're so, you could never have imagined it when, when you know, your your marriage ended so unexpectedly, but that you're happy now. Yeah, I am. And that, I mean, it's complicated, right? There are days that are hard. There are days where I think, I look at, you know, I hear somebody tell me that their parents just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, or I see that somebody is sick and their spouse is really standing by them. And I think, wow, that's not going to be me. And that's scary. And also it's just sad. It's not what I wanted for myself, but I never would have thought I'd also have the excitement of, of this chapter two. Now I get to be myself now maybe i would have gotten there eventually anyway you know maybe the kids would have left the house and eventually i'd be an empty nester not till i'm like 60 because i had my last child at 40 um but maybe i would have gotten there anyway but here i am and i am very grateful that my body is cooperating with me that my mind is cooperating with me and that i'm that i'm in a position where i can just seek out new experiences and and try to make a life now for myself as an independent person and not just as a mother, by the way, being a mother is always going to be the most important thing to me. Um, but it's always going to be the thing I, I hang my hat on the most. I, I love, I still love being a mother and I never want to disappoint my children, but I understand also that it's that, that I have to count in that equation. I can't obliterate the person that I am to be the great mother I want to be. I love that so much. You have to, um, it starts with you, you know, and that you can't obliterate yourself and that you you are an important and like critical part of the equation. And I've seen that with um, my own relationships with women in my life, that women who sort of prioritize what they care about and and sort of a core essential self, I think are just happier and uh, women, which makes you a happier mother. Laura, um, we're getting ready to wrap up. But before we do, I want to just ask, because I I usually ask guests if they have any kind of resource, you know, like a book or a tool Mm -hmm. that that helped them with whatever it was they were experiencing that they came on to talk about. Was there something that was meaningful to you when you started navigating this transition in your your marriage and your sex life? Yes, I actually, I'm a huge reader and I had a very hard time after my husband and I split up, it was very hard for me to read. I couldn't focus. The the words would just sort of blur together. So what I started doing was listening to audios. Um, and I would listen everywhere I went. And I actually loved it because it was like I got to hear other people's voices and not just my own miserable voice. 
Um, you know, it was miserable at the time. So it was great for me because it was like just constant positive feedback. And I, the, the books I listened to, there were a few that really stayed with me. One was um, When Things Fall Apart by Pima Chodron. I don't know if I'm saying her name correctly, but she is a Buddhist um, woman who is a writer and a teacher and educator. And the basic premise of her book was when things fall apart, embrace it because you don't know what's going to be on the other side of it. And I, it just gave me permission to know that my world had fallen apart, but that there might be something great on the other side of it. I, I didn't feel that way for a long time, but I, I just had faith that that could happen. And that gave me a lot of hope. She talks a lot about meditation and that's a huge part of her practice. I am a, a wannabe meditator and I've never been able to do it successfully. I can't sit still long enough. I still aspire to it, but I didn't. So that book, even though it's a lot about meditation, I just sort of didn't really listen to that part, but the words were very important to me. And also books by, I listened to a million books, but also Anne Lamott. She's written so many books so and fabulous. I find her really, she's amazing. She's so funny and she's so real and self-deprecating and she's very religious and spiritual, but she's also, she's not sanctimonious. And I just always felt with her like, you know what? You could be a little kinder. You not, not she meaning myself. I could be a little kinder. I could be a little kinder to myself. I could be a little kinder to other people, but she says it was such a great sense of humor that it didn't feel sappy or, or trite. It felt real like this is really how it's going to be sometimes you're going to be really judgmental and nasty and it's okay just do it and then just be a nice person be, again right move through that moment you just have to like feel all your feels and then keep going because yep. there is you know a, a you know better kinder you on the other side you know until you're back again you know just you know life is cyclical so it's nice to have people remind you of that sometimes and that you whatever you're feeling yes. you're, you know, no feeling is forever um, no so, feeling is forever. So how can our listeners keep following you, Laura, and learn about the book when it drops and, and keep following your, your writing? Thank you. Well, the book will be published next month um, and it will be available. It will uh, be publishing in June so they can find me on Amazon or on Audible. I've recorded an audio version of it so that they can listen if they if they are not uh, horrified by my voice after this half hour. They can certainly <laughs> download that and listen to me talk about you read it all out loud um i'm on instagram at laura friedman williams uh f-r-i-e-t friedman uh williams and i'm on twitter at laura fw in nyc and those are all the places where i can be found right now but mostly i think you know i'm i'm excited for people to read my book and i hope that if people have personal stories that they want to share with me that they'll reach out to me on any one of those Twitter or Instagram or whatever, um, because I'm I'm there and I would love to hear from people and hear their experiences. And it's 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 my first time being out there with a book, and I'm just excited to have these very open dialogues with people. You should be excited. This book is phenomenal. I'm putting all of your social handles. I'm putting the book title into the show notes. The book is called Available. A memoir of sex and dating after a marriage ends, and you can find it on Amazon or wherever you buy books in June. Laura, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Katie. It was so much fun to talk to you. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women over 50 who are aging without apology. If you enjoyed this week's show, please take a minute to click clack over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the pod to rate and review the show. 
I think this episode deserves five stars. Join me next week when we continue to talk midlife relationships. I'm joined by sex and relationship expert Tracy Cox, author of Great Sex Starts at 50, How to Age-Proof Your Libido. Special thanks to Michael Mancini who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties. Beauties.